Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Most Dangerous Idol of Them All. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, February 19, 2017. As far back as we can peer into the mists of history, Human beings have always been religious. In his book, A Little History of Religion, Richard Holloway notes the first undisputed evidence for our religiosity. <coughs> the funeral rites and burial customs 130,000 years ago, in which people painted the bodies of the dead with wet red okra paint then laid them to rest in special places, with special objects, and in special ways. Death, these rites seem to say, was a door to another place, rather than to nothingness. For all its notoriety today, atheism, observed the Harvard scholar of comparative religions Wilfred Cantwell Smith, has always been oddly parochial in space and time. It's astonishing that anyone would ever believe something so wrong-headed, like the idea that religion will wither away. But we must admit that not all that glitters is gold. Some of our religious views and practices are clearly false, violent, and even despicable. Like Aztec human sacrifice, the Christian Crusades, and the Hebrew text of terror in which God commands his people to exterminate their enemies without mercy. Today, we would rightly call these three examples war crimes, or crimes against humanity. And so a recurring theme in Holloway's book comes from this week's Leviticus chapter 19, verse 4, and the first three of the Ten Commandments. Holloway calls it the most important insight into God ever discovered by humans. That is, the prohibition against idolatry. There are four versions of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20 and 34, Leviticus 19, and then Deuteronomy 5. The telling of this ancient story is remarkable for its honesty. The second word reads, you shall not make for yourself an idol. But just a few pages later, that's exactly what the people did. We read in Exodus 32, verse 1, Come, make us gods who will go before us. Before Moses ever descended Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, the Hebrews grew impatient. They begged Aaron for a golden calf. They built an altar so they could bow down to their gods of gold. In this ancient story, so evocative with contemporary applications, the people worshipped a golden god, sacrificed to it, indulged in revelry, as the text says, and even proclaimed national celebrations. We've been creating our own gods in our own image ever since. Idols lure us with powerful illusions and misplaced hopes. They make seductive promises. They promise much, 
but deliver little. Our false gods come in all sizes and shapes. The advertising industry testifies to the power of our puny household gods. We idolize anything and everything. Career, race, gender, sex, wealth, age, and especially nation. Our personal gods are so petty and pathetic that they would be laughable if they weren't so insidious and corrosive. But these household gods are child's play compared to our national idols. National idols are more global than personal, more public than private, and more institutional than individual. They unleash far more violence upon humanity than our trivial household gods. The most vicious of national gods is the war god. C. Wright Mills used a suggestive description when he spoke of our quote-unquote military metaphysic, by which he meant a way of construing every national aspiration or international problem in distinctly military terms. In the last hundred years, at least 200 million people, mainly civilians, have been sacrificed to the war gods. Only the state has the wherewithal to unleash mass murder on this scale, and both our leaders and we citizens bear responsibility. Our inherent religiosity, our deeply human impulse to create God in our own image, is so strong and dangerous that the Swiss theologian Karl Barth called the gospel revelation the Aufhebung of all human religion, that is, its abolition, annulment, or invalidation. That's too extreme and conveniently binary for my taste, but Barth was repudiating Hitler, who claimed divine sanction, and his own theological professors, who had signed on to Hitler's genocidal program. So his warning is well taken. Divine revelation and human religion are not the same thing. And so the insight of Holloway. The real target of the ancient prohibitions against idolatry was religion itself. I quote Holloway, and not just the kind that got people dancing around a golden calf, it was warning us that no religious system could capture or contain the mystery of God. Yet in history, that's exactly what many of them will go on to claim. The second commandment was an early warning that the organizations that claimed to speak for God would become God's greatest rivals, the most dangerous idol of them all. And so the commandment about idolatry would save us from our besetting sin of presumption. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord. To bestow a name, to use a name, or to know a name, says Michael Coogan in his book, The Ten Commandments, is an expression of control. When Adam and Eve named the animals in Genesis, they expressed their dominion over them. When conquering nations subdued an enemy, 
They often change their names as a sign of subjugation, as we see, for example, in the book of Daniel. Despite the casual confidence with which we speak in worship, control or dominion over the name of God is precisely what no person can ever have. The very thought is blasphemous. Coogan gives two examples. When Jacob asked the divine messenger to tell him his name, the response is evasive. Why do you ask my name? Similarly, when Manoah asked the angel of the Lord, what is your name? The reply is similar. Why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. These two examples echo God's famously evasive response to Moses, who also asked about God's name. The response, I am who I am. And so some Jews honor the mysterious, the inexpressible, and the inviolable name of God by not even pronouncing it. Instead, they substitute the word Adonai, or Lord. Or sometimes you might hear an observant Jew refer to God as Hashem, the name. The third commandment about the name of God warns us not only about our casual presumptions, it reminds us of the limits of human language when we speak about the holy other God. C.S. Lewis captures the practical implications of this in his poem called Footnote to All Prayers. Here's Lewis's poem. He whom I bow to only knows to whom I bow. When I attempt the ineffable name, murmuring thou, and dream of Phidian fancies and embrace in heart symbols I know which cannot be the thing thou art. Thus always, taken at their word, all prayers blaspheme, worshiping with frail images a folklore dream. And all men in their praying, self-deceived, address the coinage of their own unquiet thoughts, unless... Thou, in magnetic mercy to thyself, divert our arrows, aimed unskillfully beyond desert. And all men are idolaters, crying unheard to a deaf idol, if thou take them at their word. Take not, O Lord, our literal sense. Lord, in thy great unbroken speech, our limping metaphor, translate. This isn't the last thing or only thing we could say about the inexpressible name of the infinite God, but it should be the first. These limitations can be a liberation. I no longer have to pretend that I fully understand God. The mystery of prayer becomes something to honor rather than to explain. I don't even need to be right. For in what Lewis calls his magnetic mercy, God will my limping metaphors translate. And so, having honored the third commandment as best we can, we're prepared for the shocking words of Jesus. 
that God Almighty is not only the infinite other, he's also my intimate Abba. For books this week, I review a new title by Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It's called My Own Words, New York, Simon & Schuster, 2016. This book is 371 pages. When Ruth Bader Ginsburg entered law school in 1956, women comprised about 3% of the law profession. Today, they comprise half of law school students and over a third of our federal judges. Beginning in the 1970s, few people have been more responsible for that remarkable sea change than Ginsburg herself. She was one of the foremost litigators before the Supreme Court on gender equality, a founder of the ACLU's Women's Rights Project, and so earned the moniker the Thurgood Marshall of the women's movement. In 1993, Bill Clinton nominated her to become a Supreme Court Justice. In our own politically divisive days, it's shocking to read how the Judiciary Committee voted 18 to 0 to send her candidacy to the Senate, which in turn approved her nomination by a vote of 96 to 3. It was a well-deserved love fest. And across the ensuing years, she's become the liberal minority's most senior justice. This book is not a biography or autobiography, as I mistakenly thought when I checked it out of the library. Rather, it's a collection of Ginsburg's writings, speeches, briefs, articles, letters, and so on collected by two law professors whom Ginsburg has chosen as her future authorized biographers. There are five main sections to the book, her early years, tributes to way pavers, women in the law, becoming a justice, and then her role on the Supreme Court. After a brief introduction by Ginsburg herself, the two editors introduce each major section an individual chapter with background information and historical context. Those like me who aren't used to reading legal arguments might find some of the reading heavy sledding, but there were nonetheless numerous enjoyable takeaways. Ginsburg and Scalia, for example, enjoyed a deep and genuine friendship despite their differences based upon a deep reverence of the institution they served. I liked her section on the wives of justices, a very characteristic honoring of those we often ignore by Ginsburg. She and her husband Marty doted on each other across a marriage of 56 years. The sheer workload of the court is amazing, About 6,500 petitions were reviewed every year, with about 80 full briefs and arguments that lead to opinions. And finally, and again despite the divisive stereotypes of our day, 
Most of the Supreme Court cases are not decided by narrow majorities. There's far more collegiality in agreement. She writes, in recent terms, the court has ruled unanimously, at least as to the bottom line judgment, in about 40% of the argued cases. In contrast, the court divides sharply, five to four, in fewer than 25% of the argued cases. No wonder that among her many awards and honors, in 2016, Forbes magazine named Ruth Bader Ginsburg one of the world's greatest leaders. Once again, the title of the book, My Own Words, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, with two editors, Mary Hartnett and Wendy Williams. For movies this week, I review a title from 2016 called San Junipero. San Junipero is the beach town setting for episode four in season three of the British television series called Black Mirror that debuted in 2011 and that was later made available on Netflix. This episode features the unfolding relationship between two very different young girls who meet at a nightclub. Yorkie is shy, the epitome of dowdy, and has never even laid foot on a dance floor. The extroverted Kelly is black, bisexual, and by her own description, description bodacious. But this being Black Mirror, there are far more weighty matters to consider than booze fests at nightclubs like the Quagmire, which, by the way, is aptly named. Issues like life, love, aging, and death, all of which are given due consideration with the help of time travel between past, present, and future. Do you really want to spend eternity in a place however gorgeous, where nothing matters?" asked Kelly. If technology is a drug, explains the creator of Black Mirror, Charlie Brooker, and it does feel like a drug, then what precisely are the side effects? This area between delight and discomfort is where Black Mirror is set. The black mirror of the title is the one you'll find on every wall, on every desk, in the palm of every hand, the cold, shiny screen of a TV, a monitor, a smartphone. The fictional satires in Black Mirror have drawn comparisons to the Twilight Zone with their ominous explorations of our techno-paranoia. To date, there have been 13 episodes, each of which is about 45 to 90 minutes long. Once again, an episode four in season three of Black Mirror. The episode is called San Junipero. And for poetry this week, favorite poem by Stanley Kunitz. Stanley Kunitz lived from 1905 to 2000, 
and 6. The title of the poem is called The Layers. I have walked through many lives, some of them my own, and I am not who I was, though some principle of being abides, from which I struggle not to stray. When I look behind, as I am compelled to look before I can gather strength to proceed on my journey, I see the milestones dwindling toward the horizon and the slow fires trailing from the abandoned campsites, over which scavenger angels wheel on heavy wings. Oh, I have made myself a tribe out of my true affections, and my tribe is scattered. How shall the heart be reconciled to its feast of losses? In a rising wind, the manic dust of my friends, those who fell along the way, bitterly stings my face. Yet I turn, I turn, exulting somewhat, with my will intact to go wherever I need to go. And every stone on the road precious to me in my darkest night, in my darkest night, when the moon was covered and I roamed through the wreckage, a nimbus-clouded voice directed me, saying, Live in the layers, not on the litter. Though I lack the art to decipher it, no doubt the next chapter in my book of transformations is already written. I am not done with my changes. Stanley Kunitz, The Layers. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, February 19th, 2017. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.